Now, we can only imagine what it must have been like there in the home of Jairus and his wife if they're, as they're watching their daughter get sick. And I don't know how long it would have taken, but maybe she took a, uh, one day she had some kind of cold symptoms and, and uh, they tried to give her some of their home remedies and maybe some essential oils and that didn't seem to work, which is surprising. You know, essential oils seem to be the, the thing for everything. And, and uh, I, I learned there's an essential oil called Valor. Did you guys know this? Liquid courage. I thought, this is great. If I'm ever being fearful, take a little bit of valor. <laughs> I don't think that's actually what it means. But anyways, I, I was just thinking that's a great essential oil. Anyways, um, <laughs> I'm not going to say anymore. There are so many things I want to say about essential oils, uh, but I'm not going to say anything, okay? I think, uh, yeah, okay. Um, Saul dealt with that at the witch at Endor, so I'm not going to say anything more. So let's just, let's just move on. So anyways, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so here's, here's what's happening. Jairus and his wife have learned that their daughter is sick. And she's on her deathbed. And, and we, we dealt with that for quite a while this morning, so I'm not going to take any more time on that. But, but what would have been their natural recourse? What would have been their natural uh, response to a, their daughter being sick? Especially if they had had any means, what would be their natural response? And you, you tell me, what would it be? To go to a doctor. I mean, that's what you do when you have human problems and a human sickness. And that's certainly not wrong to go to a doctor. Today, God has given us doctors for a reason. But in Mark chapter 5, I want to just read this because it gives a little bit of a different angle. I believe the situation in Luke 8 is you, you just see Jairus appearing in the crowd. Like, oh, hey, Jairus is here. But it seems in Mark 5, the understanding is that, uh, that Jairus was on his way to the doctor or somewhere. He was on the street because he's trying to get help and he he sees Jesus. So I'm in Mark chapter 5, and, and, and you knowing the story in Luke chapter 8, the scripture says this, uh, And when Jesus was passed again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. So this is how I imagine it. I cannot say uh, this, is the, this is exactly how it happened. This is what I imagine. I imagine that Jairus and his wife, they've considered all day, what should we do? She's getting worse. We need to call the doctor Jairus. But the doctor doesn't seem to be able to help us. We've gone to him before. But Jairus, where else? can we go to? Well, I'll try the doctor again. Jairus, the death rattle has gone into her throat. We need help now. I'm imagining Jairus takes a bag full of gold to, to try to pay for a physician as he runs down the street that day looking, where is the doctor? And there the crowd begins to gather. And maybe his curiosity is arrested as the, as the crowd is moving and some people begin to shout, there he is, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he's at that point of decision. Do I continue to go get the doctor or the physician or do I try Jesus? Maybe the voice in his mind is his wife saying, Jairus, we don't have much time. Jairus, she's going to die. Jairus, move quickly, please act. The doctor or Jesus? The doctor or Jesus? I don't have time to try both of them. I must choose one. Who will I go to? Naturally, I would want to go to the doctor and I wouldn't want to go to Jesus because Jesus is the ruiner of my religion. And yet Jairus, it seemed, had a simple understanding that that Jesus of Nazareth can do far more than any human physician. And so he runs to him. When he sees him in the multitude, Jairus runs to Jesus. And we developed that this morning, how Jairus falls down before him. And here's the picture that I want to deal with here this evening. It is the picture of total abandonment. We know in the text, as we looked at this morning, that there was not much time left for the girl. And Jairus probably knows that to an extent. That is why he is so urgent with the need. 
And because there is not much time in the choosing of whether he goes to the physician or the choosing of whether he goes to Jesus, because I don't think he was just down there doing normal business and being like, hey, my daughter's about to die. And, oh, look, there's Jesus. Let's try him. No, I think there was urgency. And instead of choosing the doctor, he chooses Jesus and his, his, all of his resources and, and all of his options, he's placing everything on Jesus because if Jesus fails him, the daughter's going to die. But if Jesus can heal his daughter, he can do what the doctor cannot do. And so he chooses Jesus and he comes in humility and lays himself out before Jesus, pleading with him. And Mark 5 makes it clear that Jesus is going with him. We've studied that from Luke chapter 8. And we know the timing is short because in the process of going to his house, the woman with the issue of blood stops there. And in those just those few minutes of conversation, that's all the time it took. For the news to come, your daughter's dead. Jesus missed it. Now, we, we kind of left off this morning. Jairus is there in the street. Jesus knows that his daughter is dead. Jesus does not rebuke him for his unbelief. And the servant is there saying to Jairus, look, don't trouble the master. Jesus failed you. As I said this morning, the expiration date for your prayer request has come and gone and Jesus missed it. Now consider the wrestling that Jairus has. I didn't go to the doctor because I didn't think he could do it. I came to you, Jesus. I cast myself on you. I asked you for deliverance. I humbled myself before you and you failed me. Now he's at another point of decision, of abandonment. Now what do I do? The natural response is to leave Jesus in the crowd. He failed you. The natural response is the mourners. That's the natural response to say, well, Jesus messed up. Jesus missed it. Let's mourn and weep because she is dead. Can you imagine him there? He's maybe, if he's thinking about his reputation, he just humbled himself before Jesus and Jesus didn't make it. And now he's there in the street and Jesus turns to him and says, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. Now, now just think about that statement. Let's look at it from the natural perspective and from the divine perspective. The natural perspective is she's dead. Now let me ask you, was the daughter dead? Okay, Jesus says just a few minutes later, she is not dead, she sleeps. Did he lie? So was the daughter dead? Okay, let us not miss this. The daughter was dead. So when Jairus is on the street that day, the servant comes to him. The servant's not making this up. The servant was like, well, I think she was close when I came to tell you that she was dead. No, she, the servant waited until she was dead because he is not going to give him false information because that's the news Jairus doesn't want to hear. He, the daughter is dead. And now Jesus turns to him and says, look, if you just believe, it's all going to turn out okay. Jairus knows that normal men don't raise people from the dead. In his ministry, he's never seen a miracle like that. Maybe he's heard of Lazarus, but he's never seen that. The natural perspective at that point is, I tried you already, you failed me, I'm going to go to the coroner. But he again chooses to cast himself in an unnatural way back on Jesus. Maybe Jesus can still heal my need. Maybe you've heard the old song, He's four days late and still on time, speaking of Lazarus. You know, there's no deadline that Jesus has missed. You say, but she's dead. He missed it. No, as I mentioned this morning, Jesus always sends the, sees the end story. 
Jesus always sees the victory. He always sees the solution. It's not that he misses the impossibility that the girl was dead. It's not that he didn't realize that. He just already knows what he is going to do. And so Jairus, maybe the crowd, if there was someone in the crowd that wanted to mock him, if there was someone in the crowd who wanted to make fun of him and say, ha, you tried Jesus and it didn't work. If there was someone who wanted to make fun of him, he could have been made fun of. He could have sunk back and shrunk back in, in, in a, 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 a self-preservation mode, trying to pick up what is left of his reputation and grieve over his dead daughter. But again, he chooses to abandon himself back over to Jesus. Imagine what it must have been like for him as they are walking to the house. The thoughts that Jairus is having is Jesus is right there by his elbow. They're on their way to the house. And he's wondering, could Jesus... Is it possible he still could? Maybe that flicker, that, that, that little bit of hope is still lighting up in his soul. He's not going to turn back because Jesus is the only thing he has. It seems like the ship that he trusted has shipwrecked, but he's going to stick with the ship. And they get to his house. And there Jesus casts out all the natural people. The ones who say, Jesus can't heal. He casts them all out because we don't need that perspective. And Jesus comes to the daughter and says, Talitha kumi, being interpreted, I say unto you, made arise. And the girl comes to life. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jairus and his wife? When they walked into the room, the girl is stone cold and breathless. And there they're looking at her wondering, could Jesus do something? He speaks to the girl and she sits back up and every bit of anxiety and wonder about the fact, did we trust Jesus? Was it wise to trust him? Should we have tried the physician? It was all wiped away. Because when they abandoned themselves to Jesus, he came through. You know, if you look through the scriptures, when God's people trust God, they always win. I remember being in seminary and there was a professor that made that statement. He said at 12 years old, he read through the entire scriptures. He read from, the, from Genesis to Revelation. He says, the one theme I couldn't get away from is that God's people always win. Now certainly you can read through the stories of the children of Israel and the times that they didn't trust God and how God made sure that they knew that when they didn't trust Him, uh, He was someone to be feared. But every time the children of Israel abandoned themselves to God, God delivered. May I ask you, church family, this evening, could you say that your life is regularly marked by abandonment to God? You say, well, what does that mean? That means you have no plan B. In the financial world, we talk about things like diversifying our portfolio. I'm sure all of us have heard that statement. The idea is, and I'm not a financial guru, I hire people for that because I don't understand a lot about it, but I do understand this. Diversifying your portfolio, the, the market can be incredibly unstable and insecure. So if you've got resources, you're not going to place all your eggs in one basket, as it were. That is considered financially risky. No, based upon the idea of insecurity, you take your resources and you spread them out all over a, a multiple platforms so that if one fails you, the whole ship doesn't go down. You have at least something else to lean on. Financially, that's considered wise. But spiritually, you're a fool when you diversify your portfolio. Because God is not interested in competition. And if you think and if I think that I have a better solution to the problem He has allowed into my life, He'll allow me to try to pursue my solution, my plan B, my plan C, 
my plan D, until I come to the place where I have no place to turn. And then if I would abandon myself to Christ, he would prove himself faithful. May I ask you men in your business, whether it be the business you own or the company that you work for, the product you produce, do you have a plan B? In other words, is all of your resources and all of your reputation resting upon the goodness of God or is it resting upon your ability to add or detract, your ability to uh, make a new product, your ability to woo customers? Because what I have found in my life is that when I have a plan B, the Lord allows me to struggle in it until I would turn back to Him as my plan A. You think throughout the, all of the Old Testament, Noah. Noah's a man. God gave him a command. Noah, I want you to build an ark. Now, okay, an ark. Have you ever been to the ark encounter? You say, that's, that's pretty big. But for us, an ark, oh, we, that's not that big of a deal, is it? We've all seen rain. But he hadn't. Noah, I want you to build an ark. I want you to take your three boys. I want you to build this boat. It's going to take you 100 years, Noah. And Noah, you might be mocked. And Noah, I want you to every day preach to the people about the coming judgment. Preach the message of salvation. Preach repentance, Noah. Noah stands up there. I'm imagining the very first day. They've been gathering for several weeks. They've got a pile of wood. And begin, people are, be, are beginning to ask, what is Noah doing? I don't know. No, we've always known Noah to be a wise man. Why is he doing this? And the first day he stands up there, he knows what's going to happen when these carnal men hear his message. And so he begins to preach. There's coming a day when rain will fall. Noah, what's rain? I don't know. I've never seen it before. Who told you, Noah, that there's rain coming? Well, God did. Have you ever seen him? Well, no. Can you imagine that position that he found himself in? As he stood there for a hundred years preaching the message of salvation and repentance and he was mocked, ridiculed, and laughed at? By the time the boat is built, he has no friends other than his family. He's abandoned himself to God. If God doesn't come through and if they board that ship and no rain comes, he is going to go down in history as the greatest fool ever known. But we know he'll go down in history as the only man that survived, other than his three boys. Imagine with me, he's been preaching for a hundred years. It's all on Jesus now. And maybe his wife said, no, are you sure about this? All I know is I must be obedient to God. And the day that the, the landing goes down, the, the, the door goes down, and the animals begin to come out, and the, the people begin to mock, oh, look, Noah's cast his spell on the, people, on the animals, and they, they file on. And maybe the people are beginning to wonder, but still they've never seen any rain. And Noah and his family walk onto the ark and the door closes and still no rain. You imagine how much of a fool they may have felt, but they've abandoned themselves to God. And if God doesn't come through, they will look, like, uh, they will look very foolish until the rain begins to fall and God vindicates his name again. And we know Noah now in the hall of faith to be one of the greatest, simplest men of faith in the scriptures because he abandoned himself to God. Think of Abraham. Abraham has been called of God to leave his region, uh, his family and everything he knew to go and sojourn in a place that he didn't even know. It's like the Lord coming to you and saying, now son, I want you to pack everything in a U-Haul. I want you to start driving. Where? Just get on 95 and start driving. <laughs> How far? How much cash do I need to bring for fuel? Don't worry about it. Just start driving. 
Where, where are we? I mean, what, what belongings do I need? Are you sure about? Can my family come with me? Noah or Abraham, just drive. And I'll let you know when. You drive for the very first day and you finally make it down south of Massachusetts. And you say, now, now, Lord, is this where? Lord, please not here. Don't let us stop here. Okay, okay the Lord's going to let me keep going. And so you get farther down and you're like, well, at least the Lord's directing us south. It's warmer down there. You hit Virginia. Lord, this looks great. Is this where you want? Just keep driving. I'll let you know. And your wife begins to say, do you know where you're going? Of course I do. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I'm abandoned to God. Can you imagine what it was like? We read some of these stories we don't consider all the time what it was like these men placed themselves at the care of God that if God fails them, they will look like a fool and will be ruined for life. Think about Moses. Moses killed an Egyptian and fled and now God has come to him on the backside of the desert and said, I want you to go back to Pharaoh and present yourself as the, uh, as the man I have appointed to rescue the people of Israel. But God, I walk back into that court and he'll have me killed. He knows my record. If I present myself there, he could have me executed on the spot. And the Lord said, just trust me. But Lord, I can't speak. Don't worry about that either. Lord, I have no miracles. I've got it covered. Just trust me, Moses. He goes there to Egypt and, and, and God delivers the ten plagues. And you think about that. We could work through all the ten plagues, how God delivered it. And finally they're leaving the, the, uh, Egypt and they're going down towards the Red Sea and they've got an army behind them and they've got the water in front of them. They can't go right and they can't go left. And a wall of water parts. Now we often think of that and say, wow, that's so awesome. I'd have just walking through, walked through that. I doubt those people could swim. Can you imagine what it must have been 30, 40, 50 feet high of water mounting up beside you and you're just going to walk through that? But the entire nation, based upon Moses' leadership, abandoned themselves to God. They said, we're going through the water. We have no other option. It's either God, of, God Jehovah or it's the Egyptians and we're choosing God. And as they walked across that dry ground. And the men who came behind them in their chariots tried the same course, but they weren't abandoned to God. They were abandoned to their own cause. And God proved faithful, dropped the walls of water and destroyed an army. Can you imagine with me Daniel? Daniel has been told, you pray to God one more time and it will be your death sentence. And Daniel goes to his open doors and prays towards Jerusalem, knowing what will happen, knowing it means imminent death, but choosing to trust God anyways. You say, Daniel, that's crazy. What if God fails me? If God fails me, he fails me, but I'm abandoned to God. Consider Esther. Esther going in before the king to plead for her people and her words were, fast for me, if I perish, I perish. What she is saying is, if God doesn't deliver, then I'm done for, but I'm casting myself on the God of heaven and it's up to him now. Church family, do we live that way? Or do you live stressed? Do you live frustrated? Do you live impatient? Do you live in anxiety? Do you know what those qualities prove? It means you're living with plan B, plan C, plan D, and not plan A. Several months ago, I was down and we were in Texas, and someone paid for us to go to a uh, chiropractor. This is a, a more technologically advanced chiropractor than I'd ever been to, and they took x-rays of everything, and they did everything very precisely, and they'd show you, okay, here's your curvature. It's, it's off here, and it's off here, and all that kind of stuff. And, and as the lady is looking at me, and uh, I, again, I told you this morning, I'm 30, so I'm not very old. And she's looking at this spine and she says, you've got arthritis already beginning in your spine. I say, you're kidding. <laughs> and uh, I said, what causes that? And she said, well, stress is a main one. 
Now, she's not, this is, she's not a scientist, so she's not telling me, like, okay, your, their number one cause is stress, but she said that's often what causes this kind of, uh, of um, arthritis. And I walked out of there thinking, stress? I don't consider myself a stressed-out person. But as I began to analyze my life, you know how often I find myself worried over, like, what am I going to preach next Sunday? <laughs> or how am I going to pay for the fuel that goes in our truck? You know, it's $200 just to fill that tank in that 40-gallon diesel tank. I mean, when the, when the fuel went through the roof, I find myself driving and thinking, Lord, Lord, don't you know? That's a lot of money. And, oh, Lord, I'm not getting very good gas mileage pulling this thing. And you know what we often think to ourselves is, well, I'm just being responsible. I need to worry about these things. I don't know what's going to happen next week with this financial bill, and I just need to be worried about it and really fret about it because that proves that I'm concerned and it proves I'm responsible. No, what it proves is you've got too many plans and you're not abandoned to God. And God began to deal with me. Caleb, don't you think I can take care of you? Why do you try to figure out all these other things when I have plan A and you, do, you need no other plan? I was talking to Burst Champion back on Wednesday and we were talking about the testimony of Ross Hodston. And Birch said to me, he said, Ross lived, if you knew Ross, he said Ross lived like, like he believed God was for him. <laughs> do you understand what that means? Where you don't need to fear. You know, people who fear and, are, and worry and are anxious and are stressed, that's people who do not know who their God is. They think that they can keep one foot, uh, one uh, part of themselves resting on God and the rest they'll take care of. That didn't work for your salvation. Why do you try it in your sanctification? Ross, they, the testimony that was given, and I've been around him at several times, and man, in all those dire circumstances, he's running up the path of the BB gun rejoicing, hey, look at this snake I'm going to kill. I mean, like, who does that? <laughs> A man who's abandoned to God. There's an account of Oswald Chambers and I, I want to read this because I found it so helpful. Oswald and his wife, uh, Biddy, that was his name that he had called her. They had gone to visit a lady by the name of Gertrude. This lady, Gertrude, was suffering from typhoid fever and lying near, very near death in the hospital. Oswald and his wife go to visit her and spend time with her. They come back to their home and Biddy, his wife, this is uh, the, his biographer's writing this. Biddy had said, I wonder what God is going to do. Between brush strokes, Oswald replied, I don't care what God does. It's what God is that I care about. Biddy managed to smile. She knew the heart of love and concern which her husband had just spoken what might seem a callous remark. He cared deeply what happened to Mrs. Gertrude, but he knew that God's actions could be very confusing while the Lord himself never was. I'm asking you, church family, if you've cast yourself on that, Jesus... Because the Jesus who never fails, there are times where to Jairus, it looked like he failed. But he's a Jesus who never fails. And when we cast ourselves, abandon ourselves, lay ourselves on the everlasting arms of Jesus, when we lean on his arms, his strong arms never fail. Are you abandoned to God? Some time ago as I was working through this, I want to read an allegorical illustration that I found helpful in trying to consider my own options, consider where I was at. Because as a preacher, and especially as a young man, there are a lot of factors that I consider on a regular basis. What I'm supposed to preach, 
what the people are going to think. Sometimes you make people mad and you didn't mean to, you didn't want to, and did you preach the right thing? And are you going to be invited back? And will the offering be enough to get you on the road? And the Lord has done plenty of miracles for us to prove that He can take care of us. But in my natural self, I find myself still getting stressed sometimes. And this allegorical illustration here that I want to read, I found so helpful in discerning whether or not I was abandoned to God. In your journey of life, you come to a large bay teeming with boats. Small boats and large, fine luxury liners and yachts, and some broken down and shabby. There is only one way to cross the bay, and that is on a boat of your choosing. So you must choose wisely. For the bay is large, its waters are deep, and storms arise suddenly and swiftly that could sink the greatest ocean liner. So you walk the shores anxiously assessing the qualities of each boat. You listen to each captain boast his ship's capabilities and declare its luxuries. You see directly in front of you a large boat called Entertainment. Dock next to her is the great ship Work and Success. A small boat of very shabby appearance named the bottle and another leaky tub called the drug idle, uh, idly sit by. As you walk down the line of boats, great and small, you finally arrive at a modest boat, well built and sturdy. It is a good sized vessel and its lines are strong and smooth. Its name is the Son of Man. It carries none of the glitzy attractions of the entertainment, nor does it demand the high boarding fee of work and success. Only the captain stand by its mooring. He does not shout and cajole those who pass by to take birth. He doesn't make grand promises too good to believe. He simply stands by his gangplank with a very gentle smile and a sign that reads, Of my ship and its crew, I have never lost one. You wonder at this peculiar boat and captain. It appears he has nothing to tempt or attract souls onto his ship. He has no prize monies, no ravaging indulgence for the flesh, no bottle to drink or joint to smoke. He has only the simple promise of my boat and my crew. I have never lost one. There is a horde of people clamming, clamoring onto both the entertainment and work and success. It seems many have weighed their options, and the size and promises of these ships have made them the prized vessels. Yet you notice still a steady stream of men and women making their way onto the sturdy vessel, the Son of Man. You stop one of the men before he gets on and inquire the reason for his selection. Good sir, he says, in my many years of crossing this bay, the Son of Man has never failed me. You counter, but the other vessels are large and more luxurious. Why couldn't they work as good as any other? He replies, those other ships are deceptive. They boast great ability, but none of the other ships have a captain. They will be tossed about in the slightest of storms. Every ship of their kind has never achieved a crossing. Their record of failure is known to all wise men. But sir, you say, what if the Son of Man were to sink? What would you do then? Then, he replies thoughtfully, then I would go down with the ship. And with that, he stepped onto the boat. The passenger's calmness and the certainty intrigues you. He has abandoned himself to this vessel and this vessel alone. You feel yourself drawn to the quiet rest, peace, and confidence that this boast seems to carry. 
But the raucous noise of the seaport and the sheer size of the other vessels tug at your inner desire for enjoyment and security. Quickly, your mind settles on a plan and you run to the captain of the Son of Man. Good captain, you say. I would like to obtain passage on the entertainment. But its lack of success in troubled waters concerns me. Could you set off at the same time as the entertainment and sail very nearby? Then, if any problem arose in the storm, I could quickly board your vessel and be safe. The captain's face falls slightly. I'm sorry, young man, he says, but I cannot do that. I cannot afford to sail close to those great ships, for they careen carelessly around the bay and pose a great hazard to anyone else sailing. Besides, once you step foot on those dark ships, their allurement draws a man to its lower decks. Once there, very few men can bring themselves to abandon their ship for another. In a storm, most men simply go to a lower deck and are lost when the whole ship capsizes and sinks. It's true, I have rescued some poor souls from the waves, but precious few. No, young man, if you will know the full sweetness of the promise of my vessel, you, may choose, you must choose now to abandon yourself to its care. Imagine with me, you choose the vessel, the Son of Man, and you walk onto that ship, and there you experience the promise, Come unto me, all ye that are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, who promises that he will in no wise cast out any who choose him. Church family, may I ask you really in simplicity this evening, could you say that your life is marked by the abandoning, being, being abandoned to God? You say, but if I trust Jesus and he fails me, what then? What then? Would you choose him? Jesus is not interested in a wavering back and forth. That's what James 1 talks about. Jesus is interested in taking the cares of his children and bearing them all and showing you what true success is, not in your own effort, but in the resting care of the Son of Man. Would we tonight be people who on a regular basis, our life is marked by abandonment to God? Can I trust him? Throughout the ages, men and women have found that he is worthy and trustworthy. Would you put him to the test and find if Jesus, the ship, the vessel for your crossing, is worthy? May I ask God to bow your heads here this evening and close your eyes.